really go back at all over last week if we're going to get through <clears throat> the psalm titles and the musical aspects of the psalm. I can only um, advise that if there's anyone who wants to know something about the literary aspects of the psalms, which are, which are very important indeed to their understanding, that you um, ask to hear the recording of last week. It's very, very important, as Professor Bruce, I think, has said, to understand something of the literary structure of the psalms. You might, other, you might otherwise think the psalmist is trying to say, to, to um, uh, continually uh, move ahead in thought, when at times, because of the structure of the psalm, he's saying one thing in two ways, that's all. And that's very important. Otherwise, you can build some uh, doctrine and other teaching uh, that may not uh, be entirely correct and balanced. And we must lead that. And this evening, <coughs> we must begin, commence straight away with the titles of the Psalms. Now, I think we have already pointed out that the Psalm titles have always been a point of controversy. <coughs> Not all the psalms have titles. Uh, the titles are the little, um, slightly smaller type, at least in the revised version and the American uh, standard version, we'll find them in slightly smaller type at the head of each psalm. We call those psalm titles. Not the bigger type uh, title that you will have in some versions, that give you a, uh, um, an in, that entitle the psalm, uh, give it um, some summary, some small summary. But the, the titles that usually begin either a psalm of David or for the chief musician, uh, something akin to that, those we call psalm titles. If you want a good example, well, look at Psalm 54. <coughs> That's a good example of a psalm title. For the chief musician on stringed instruments, Maskil of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Doth not David hide himself with us? These titles have always been uh, um, a point of controversy and a point of discussion. And uh, even today, we cannot rely upon them as authoritative and inspired scripture. Because we, as far as we know, some of them, if not many of them, uh, cannot be dated right back to the uh, beginning of the psalm. Nevertheless, whatever people might say about them, whatever controversies there have been, over the psalm titles, they do embody a very ancient tradition, at least prior to 150 years before Christ. At least. Some, of course, would say at least prior to 300 years before Christ. Um, the fact that the Septuagint translators, when they came to translate the Old Testament, treated these titles with such reverence although they couldn't quite understand them, by then, all the musical side of the, uh, of the first temple 
had vanished and much of the understanding of the arrangements, the choir arrangements and the rest had, uh, had been lost uh, completely uh, to the people of God. Uh, nevertheless, they, they felt that they, that they were so uh, genuine uh, that they treated them with the utmost diligence and care, even so insofar that they translated the Hebrew when they didn't understand it. They, they transliterated it into Greek. So that you get a, a, quite a lot of transliteration uh, here, just because they couldn't understand what the sound patterns meant, but they did not feel at liberty to cut them out uh, or forget them, to overlook them. Many, of course, just because of the mystery and the confusion that uh, centers around these sound titles, would have had us completely dismiss them. And indeed, some of versions have cut them out altogether as thoroughly unreliable. However, slightly more balanced and saner councils now really have come to the top. And uh, today, there's a much, much greater appreciation of these psalm titles than there ever was uh, before. Uh, in these um, psalm titles, which of course, as I have already said, embody a very ancient tradition about each respective psalm that they are attached to, in these psalm titles, as they are arranged in our versions, authorized version, revised version, standard version, or revised standard version, uh, they are all uh, follow the exact same arrangement. As arranged in our different versions, we find four kinds of information given. The first uh, information is musical. In nearly many of these, not all of them, but many of these titles begin off for the chief musician. And then uh, there's all... Uh, other little thoughts and ideas that we may have time to look at this evening. Musical instructions. First kind of information given. The second kind of information we find in them a literary note. That goes back to last week. Whether the psalm is a mixtum, or a maskil, or a praise, or a prayer, or a psalm in its technical sense of the word, or a song, or a song and a psalm, or a psalm and a song, or a mixtum and a song, and so on. Uh, that's the literary side. The dominant note that is found within that psalm, uh, you will sometimes find a key is given in the psalm title. That's the second kind of information we get. The third kind of information that we get in these titles, of course, is authorship. Information concerning authorship. Uh, I think we had discussed that last week. Um, uh, over two-thirds of the sorter has a name prefix to them. And the last kind of information that we get in these psalm titles is the historical connection. Here in this psalm, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, doth not David hide himself with us? The historical connection. It links the psalm with a certain event or point of history. There are, of course, other interesting points given in the psalm. But if you look at this Psalm 54, you will find in this particular psalm title, all four kinds of information are here. For the chief musician, on stringed instruments, 
that's musical information, must feel that is a liter the literary uh, aspect, information, must feel of David's uh, authorship. When the Ziphites came and sent to Saul, does not David hide himself without historical information? So in that particular psalm, you've got all four. You don't, of course, get in all the psalm titles all four kinds of information. In some, you in fact only get one, that is perhaps just authorship. Others usually, more usually, at least two uh, kinds of information are found in the psalm title. Now, in the course of centuries, due to the fact that, that the Hebrew script was written on scrolls that were rolled together, I don't know, I was, I was toying with the idea of getting all kinds of pictures this evening to give you an idea of this. But I wondered whether, in fact, it might confuse some. So I have followed another method, as you see on the board, uh, which I will explain in a moment. But how many of you have actually seen the, uh, the Jewish uh, scroll, uh, the Torah, for instance, the wooden-like uh, rolling pins either end, and the scroll wound around them? The way you read it was you <coughs> unrolled one end and you rolled the other. The Hebrew were always, as in Chinese, from uh, uh, right to left, and uh, you moved across the scroll, reading from the right-hand corner down to the left-hand corner, uh, moving downwards, uh, of each column. But the, the thing that characterized the early Hebrew script was closeness and compactness. Um, if you were to look at it, all you would see is just literally measured columns. No paragraph, no punctuation, nothing. In Hebrew, there were no vowels, only consonantal letters. Consequently, it was all, to you and to my, to my eye and your eye, it would have all had very much of a sameness. Packed into six columns, without any break whatsoever. You would hardly know where a chapter uh, began and where a chapter ended. Of course, in its beginnings, there were no chapter headings. There were no verse um, uh, he headings at all. Versification and uh, uh, chapters of the Bible belong, of course, to the middle uh, centuries. Um, when first written, you had to, as for instance, up to quite recently with Chinese, you had to know by the context and by sheer, just by sheerly getting into the thing where a new paragraph began and indeed where a new point in the story uh, commenced altogether. Uh, to our Western way of thinking, our highly organized and somewhat meticulous way of approach to things, of course that's a complete muddle and a mess. But that's how Hebrew uh, was written. And that's how, at the beginning, the Psalter was written. In um, scrolls, and of course, in a very compact, close way, um, in so far, in so much, that psalm ran into psalm. Uh, if you were only able to read Hebrew, um, we were all great scholars in Hebrew, we would be able to uh, discover um, that actually in the very oldest uh, versions 
Um, the uh, Psalms are not too easy, even uh, in the Masoretic text, uh, which is a great response to what we're talking about. Uh, it's not so easy to discover uh, the clear definition of the um, chapters of Psalms, of the Psalms, of the distinctive Psalms. But here, in its original, Psalm ran into Psalm with hardly any break at all. And it, they were indeed so very close that when uh, it, they, they came to define uh, each uh, Psalm, they actually split quite a number of Psalms into two. For instance, you take Psalm 9 and 10, they are one Psalm. We know that because it is one acrostic Psalm. The acrostics run over the two Psalms. So we know clearly that they belong to each other. They are, in actual fact, one psalm. Then you take Psalm the one we've read this evening, Psalm 42 and 43. They're, in actual fact, one psalm. They're not two psalms, they're one psalm. You take Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. They're not two psalms, they're one psalm. But you see, because the psalms ran into each other, when they came to break them up, some mistakes were made, seemingly. And some psalms were broken into two, when in actual fact, they were one psalm. There are, of course, other more examples than the one that I have given to you um, this evening. 32, Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 uh, as another example um, of, of what was originally one psalm, now broken into two psalms. So you see, uh, what the contention today is, uh, and the thing that I think is the most satisfactory answer to this whole question of psalm titles is simply this. And there's a lot of evidence for it. That these titles are actually two distinct things. They are, they are the, uh, a subscript and a superscript or a prefix of psalms joined together. In actual fact, they should be parted. In the process of time, what was originally the last uh, instruction uh, at the uh, bottom of a psalm uh, and the first instructions of the next psalm following have actually become joined together into what we could have considered to be up to quite recently one title. Now, you see, here on the board, I've, I've more or less done it out for you in a way that I hope would be uh, as simple so that anyone who uh, doesn't know anything about Semitic literature at all might uh, be able to understand. This actually is Psalm 54, I think. Uh, Psalm 52, is it, or is it 54? 56 and 57, that's right. This is Psalm 56 and 57. Now, you see, I put that exactly in English, obviously, as um, it would look if in Hebrew, without any punctuation, ran together, without any um, notice of sentences, questions, or anything else. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, or stop, should be. Hast thou not delivered my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living, question mark, for the chief musician, 
our passion. What? A psalm of David, Mitzvah, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul takes refuge in thee, O Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I take refuge, comma, until these, and then it goes on. Now you see, these columns just ran in parallel columns in the scroll. <coughs> and what has happened, it's quite obvious, that, that for the chief musician, Al-Tasha, belonged to Psalm 56. A psalm of David's mitzvah when he fled from Saul in the cave belonged to Psalm 57. But due in the course of centuries to the fact that the Hebrew was so compressed and compact, when all idea of the original musical setting of the psalm was lost, when it came finally to define the psalm, they cut the division there and made that the end of the psalm, and beginning with this green line, they uh, commenced with Psalm 57. Now, all we're saying is this. The real division should be here. That should be the real division. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Hast thou not delivered my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? And there was a subscript. For the chief musician, Al Tasha, which means destroyer. Then Psalm 57 began with liter a literary uh, superscript or prefix. A psalm of David. Mixtum. Actually, this is not there in Hebrew. It's just of David. Mitzvah. <coughs> Literary note. When he fled from Saul in the cave. Historical connection. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful, be merciful unto me, for my soul taketh refuge in thee. And so on. Now, I've drawn it out in the way that it should have been. And then I think you perhaps will understand. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Hast thou not delivered my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? For the chief musician, our passion. Psalm 57. Of David, next time. When he said from Saul in the cave, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful. Now, probably it's confusing you all just at present. Uh, uh, as to exactly what we are saying. But to put it in its, the simplest way possible, down through the course of centuries, due to the way in which uh, Hebrew was compressed into these parallel columns in a very compact and close manner, the subscript of Psalms and the prefixes of Psalms became joined. So that when at last, all idea of the original musical setting was lost, and they came to define the psalms distinctively. Uh, they, uh, because they couldn't understand them, they put these titles together. 
Now let's look to see if we can find any proof for this contention. Well, we have, I think, the most uh, 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 something in the word itself which proves beyond all shadow of a doubt that this, that I call a contention, is in actual fact absolutely correct. We have a psalm outside of the Psalter. It is in Habakkuk chapter 3. We'd like to turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk comes after Nahum, before Zephaniah, comes before Haggai. Habakkuk chapter 3. Now here we've got a psalm. Now this is, this is one of the most interesting things because it throws a flood of light on the construction of psalms. We've got, we've got a title here. Now listen to the prefix. A prayer, a literary note. Not a psalm, not a song, not a miktam, not a mitmaskil. It's a prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk, authorship. The prophet said to Shigiona, "O Lord, I have heard the report of the end and am afraid." Now look at verse 19. The Lord, Jehovah, the Lord is my strength, and He maketh my feet like hinds feet, and will make me to walk upon my high places. For the chief musician on stringed instruments. Now, isn't that interesting that the only psalm that we have in, in its obviously original form outside of the Psalter has got quite clearly um, this division uh, kept, maintained. Now, why should in Habakkuk um, the prefix and the subscript have been kept so quite so obviously apart, because, of course, quite obviously, there are no other prefixes or subscripts, there are no other psalms, and because of that there could be no mix-up, there was no muddle. Consequently, the psalm of Habakkuk has come down to us in its original form, with its correct subscript and its correct prefix. Whereas the psalm titles, because they've all run into each other, have been, unfortunately, mixed up. So you see, we make a very big discovery if we come to understand that we have got to divide the psalm titles. Um, we shall come to some examples in a moment that I trust will um, convince us. But you see, all we're now saying is this. We have got to divorce the literary notes from the musical note. That's all. That means that whenever you come to any title in the psalm, for the chief musician set to or on or a name has got to be divorced from its present uh, psalm and put at the end of the previous psalm. That's all. It's quite simple. Um, you can go through the whole uh, lot of psalms doing that if you'd like to. We can do just one or two. Uh, take, for instance, Psalm 45. We'll take Psalm 44. All you've got to do is you take a pencil if you've got a study Bible, is you read it. For the chief musician, Psalm 44. Now put a pencil mark after the chief musician. That for the chief musician belongs to Psalm 43. 
Of the sons of Korah, Maskil is a literary, as a literary prefix to the Psalms. Psalm 45. Four of the chief musicians set to show Shannon, or lilies. You know, put a mark after that. That belongs to Psalm 44. Of the sons of Korah, Maskil, a song of love, belongs to Psalm 45. That is the true prefix. Psalm 46. For the chief musicians, of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, put Amar after that. That all belongs to Psalm 45. A song is the prefix of Psalm 46. Psalm 47. For the chief musicians, there's a line after that. That belongs to 46. A psalm of the sons of Korah is the prefix of Psalm 47. So you see, um, I don't know whether that really makes sense to all of you, or most of you, but really, <clears throat> that is um, the most satisfactory answer to the psalm title that has yet been discovered. For centuries, right from the Septuagint translators, before Christ was born, right down through over 2,000 years of history, these psalm titles have uh, presented scholars of all kinds of shades of opinion with a tremendous problem. And it was only when Dr. Circle, blessed be his name, appeared on the scene in 1904 to tackle this problem that for the first time a ray of light began to shine upon this whole question of psalm titles. Before then, the most fanciful thing you can uh, imagine uh, had been um, uh, explained, uh, had been given as explanations of things like Shoshana lilies. They said there were lily-like <coughs> instruments that were played. Someone else said it was a lily-like trumpet. Someone said it was a lily-like vial. And so they went on with all different kinds of lily-like things without any, any basis, actually, uh, in fact. Many other things were even more amusing that they uh, somehow either got out of the psalm titles because they just could not understand them. Uh, and even the Revised Standard Version uh, has tended to look upon things like the hind of the morning and the dove of the distant terebinth as um, popular songs. They thought they were songs of surrounding nations and they said, set to the eros, set to the eros, uh, to the tune of, you see. Uh, of the distant terabits. Well, well, this that we have said this evening is the most satisfactory and rational explanation of the psalm titles, because nearly all the problems that are associated with, with the psalm titles vanish now upon inspection. If all we've got to do, may I say it once again, to restore the right order uh, of the psalm titles is to divorce the musical uh, notes from the literary notes and place the musical notes as a subscript of the previous psalm, leaving the literary notes as the prefix of the psalm concerned. That's all we have to do. Well, that's, uh, I think, immediately... Um, ought to give us a key to one or two things. I hope it will now. If, we've, if everyone's understood that, we've got a foundation now to see quite a few things. We shall see that the prefixes of psalms, that is the literary prefixes of psalms, 
consists of three things. Description of the psalm, authorship, and any historical connection. Now look at Psalm 54 again. Now, cut out for the chief musician on stringed instruments. That's the musical, uh, the musical part of the title. That belongs to Psalm 53. Now, the prefix of Psalm 54 begins with masculine of David. Now we find that the prefix of Psalm consists of at least, uh, of at least one thing and go up to three things. Firstly, they consist of a description of the Psalm, any description, a muscular. Secondly, uh, authorship, a muscular of David. Thirdly, a historical connection. When the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Doth not David hide himself with us? Then <clears throat> we shall discover that the subsequent psalms, that is the musical instructions, are important. They consist of five things, uh, to a maximum of five things, sometimes only one uh, will be given. Note concerning uh, Note earmarking certain psalms for certain seasons. We should discover that. That will give us a, a key, won't it, to some psalms. For instance, if we know that a psalm to pass over a psalm and was actually written and, and used in the temple for the Passover feast year by year, we shall get an understanding of that psalm that we didn't have before. We understand it has something to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, then. We shall, we shall have an understanding of this. Then the second thing we find in musical instructions, the subscript psalm, is note earmarking them for certain spe special occasions, uh, such as times of fasting or times of deep national humiliation and repentance, or times of national jubilation and triumph. Some of the psalms have been used and are marked for use for victory. V-Day celebration. Uh, certain psalms were used for thanksgiving to God for victory over enemies, uh, or for other things, particular days of song and triumph. Uh, or you get in that um, class of information and useful instruction, psalms uh, earmarked for commemorating a spe specific historical events. Or one or two that uh, are there to mark commemorate things, like the bringing up of the ark to uh, the house of God, or the dedication of the house of God. We've got certain psalms that were sung, but were sung to commemorate certain great national events. Then a third kind of information you get in the musical subscripts is note concerning, uh, concerning psalms, earmarking them for certain choirs. Now, it's quite important, really, that we should understand, if we're going to be thorough in this, as to what, what kind of choir sounds. Uh, I think as time goes on, as research is made, they're going to discover more and more about this side of things. They're only beginning now. You see, now that they've got the key to the psalm titles, they're now beginning to investigate this. We do know that some are female choirs. We know others were male choirs. Soprano choirs and uh, bass choirs. And then you've got other choirs, like the choir of Jedison. We don't quite know, I'll talk about it if we have time in a moment, um, as to what its meaning was. We have another choir called the Choir of the Sons of Korah, which is, uh, to say the least, a little amusing. 
Um, but we have these four choirs as far as we know. And certain songs have been earmarked for those choirs, for the use of certain choirs. These choirs, by the way, didn't die out in a generation. They became a national institution, at least until the time of the exile. And then uh, we not only get that, but we get topical titles. That's the fourth kind of information in musical, um, in the musical subscript. One, for instance, called Hind of the of Dawn. Hind of the Dawn. What's an earthly Hind of the Dawn? It's a topical title. Like we would uh, refer to, let me think, what's some song that we refer to? Yes, we could say, but that's not a quite a topical title. <laughs> I suppose we could call it the Wassel Song. See? The Wassel Song. Everyone knows the Wassel Song, I expect. Um, or the Boar's Head Carol. Boar's Head Carol. See? That's a title that we have given to a certain thing. It's not the first line. It's a, a title we've given to it. It belongs to Christmas, basically. Um, we can think of others that perhaps we could think of. Well, in the same way, there were topical titles given to certain songs. Some of them have come down to us, and we have them here. Why were, they, why were these topical titles <coughs> given? There was no such thing as numbering of the songs. But the choir could turn in an instant to the psalm needed for singing by the choir master just saying, we will sing Hind of the, do Hind of the Door. Or we will sing one of the Destroy Not Psalms, Altasha. Okay? Or would you turn to the doves of the distant terrible? Well, the choirs knew exactly where to turn to. They might seem a bit uh, far-fetched to us, but it's a topical title that enabled them immediately to turn. The reason they didn't use first lines often was because so many of the psalms begin with the first um, uh, line, same first lines. <coughs> and then, lastly, you get in musical instructions, fifthly, you get information as for, of a certain psalm, earmarking them for a certain musical setting. One or two psalms, for instance, um, have been um, uh, ha have got an uh, a note in their musical subscript earmarking them for stringed instruments. Uh, one has got a, a, a note earmarking it only for wind instruments. Well, I don't know whether that will give you any clue to its meaning, but uh, um, you see there's, there's some more information. Five kinds of information. We shall study these musical instructions in a few moments, I trust, but could we just look some of these titles now as examples, I want to give you some evidence that I trust will perhaps drive out any doubts you might have as to this being uh, uh, either a far-fetched idea or a novel uh, idea. Would you look at Psalm 88? Psalm 88 has been one of the causes why psalm titles have been treated with so much suspicion all the great Bible commentators have either torn their hair out over this psalm title or given up in gloom and despair. The reason is simply this. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the chief musician, set to Mahalath the Amos, Maskil of Heman the Ezraite. What is the difficulty? The difficulty was that until someone uh, discovered that uh, there's been a mudlap and subscript and prefix, this Psalm 88 is attributed to two distinct authors. It's attributed first to the school of Korah, 
and secondly, to He-Man, the extra archetype. Uh, consequently, modernist and liberal uh, scholars have, of course, um, seized upon it as an example uh, of the fact that you can't trust the word, whereas conservative scholars have simply just bitten their tongues, and it really is amusing in the books that I have read recently to, to find the, the answers uh, or the silence, really, uh, pathetic uh, silence that has reigned over this um, uh, point. You see, here's a psalm that's been ascribed to two authors, but it immediately vanishes when you divide it. A song, a psalm of the son of the chorus for the chief musician set to Mahalath Leonoth, which means dancing with shouting, that belongs to Psalm 87. <coughs> so we've got rid of it. A muscle of Heman the Ephraite is the prefix of Psalm 88. Stands there in its own uh, dignity uh, as the uh, literary introduction to Psalm 88. Now if you will turn, uh, well, the key to Psalm 88, I might, uh, I don't know if you know Psalm 88 or whether you, any of you could remember Psalm 88, but I must say that if any of you know it, it is not suitable for dancing with shouting. Um, I don't think there is any psalm that I think Spurgeon has said uh, that is quite, in some ways, um, so far from dancing with shouting. You read through it. You say, O oh Lord, the God of my son, I cry day and night, for let my prayer enter into thy presence, incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of trouble. And so it goes on. It's a very long psalm. Verse, verse, verse 18, Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. It's a very sad ending to a psalm. If anything was not suitable for dancing with shouting, it's Psalm 88. But look at Psalm 87. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth against Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken, thee, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon among them that know me, and so on. Verse 7, they that sing as well as they that dance will say, all my fountains are indeed so clear. Dancings with shouting. Here is a psalm, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the chief musician, dancings with shouting. A key to a certain uh, kind of psalm to be used at, at times of national jubilation. Then Psalm 56. We've mentioned this two or three times. Psalm 56. You look at the title. For the chief musician said to Jonas, Elam Rehokim, a psalm of David mixed time when the Philistines took him in Gath. What is uh, Jonas Elam Rehokim, Down of the Distant Terrible? Well, now, it has been the most, to me, quite amusing, although instructive in some ways, to read some of the commentaries that, have, um, that exist upon this psalm title, trying to find out what on earth it had to do with Psalm 56. Why was Psalm 56 to do with Down of the Distant Terrible? Well, when you read through many of the rather quaint and lovely explanations that have been given, if not uh, not having a historical setting or basis, they're very lovely. Um, it is true that they, Psalm 56 is a very sad psalm. It's a man that, that uh, um, persecuted beyond description. But 
you, if you remember what we said, for the chief musician, dubs of the distant parabens doesn't belong to Psalm 56, it all belongs to Psalm 55. Now listen to Psalm 55, verse 6 and 7. And I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, then would I fly away and be at rest. Now it all makes sense. See? See? Uh, to the chief musician, dove of the distant parabens. It all makes sense. Of course, later on he speaks of moaning and cooing uh, in that psalm. The whole psalm is to do with a dove. He, he's evidently watched the dove, and he says, oh, I was like that dove, that I could fly away and be at rest. So um, this topical title was given to the, for this uh, psalm that was called forever after, evidently a favourite, Dove of the Distant Territory. Then if you uh, look to Psalm 46, Psalm 46, for the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, for psalm. Now, Alamoth is a maiden's choir, a choir of female soprano voices. All scholars agree on that. And again, I might say Spurgeon's probably most trite when it comes to this uh, title. Um, he says that he cannot think of anything more peculiarly unfitting than maiden's voices to Psalm 46. Although he hadn't got the key to it, but he just couldn't think of anything more unfitting. Listen to it. You see, uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth do change, and though the mountains be shaken into the hearts of the seas, though the waters there roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof. You see? The nations rage, the kingdoms remove. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolation he has uh, made in the earth. It doesn't seem to be suited to ladies' voices, does it? But if you take it away, and you put it where it belongs, to the bottom of Psalm 45, of the chief musician of, of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, listen to this. King's daughters are among thy honourable women. At thy right hand of stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So will the king desire thy beauty, for he is thy lord, and reverence thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. The rich among the people shall entreat thy favour. The king's daughter within the palace is all glorious. Her clothing is inwrought with gold. She shall be led unto the king in broidered work. The virgins and companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing, shall they be led, they shall enter into the king's palace and so on. Well, quite fitting, I think, that that should be sung to uh, a maiden's choir of soprano voices. Well, I hope that, at any rate, is some little um, idea of the psalm titles. I'm going to leave it now and go straight on to music instructions because of all to do with the psalm titles, but I hope that that gives you some little idea. Uh, of the way to uh, view these titles of psalms. What about the actual musical aspects of the psalms? As the age of David was the golden age of Hebrew poetry, so also it was the golden age of Hebrew music. Now, strangely enough, music is as old as the human race. 
And the very first musical instruments we have mentioned in the Bible are found in Genesis 4 and in verse 21. Um, as early as that, we have his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handled the harp and pipe or organ. It's not the organ, of course, we know. It's the reed pipe, hand pipe. <laughs> Then we discover in Genesis 20, uh, 31 and verse 27 that Laban speaks of musical instruments. Um, later on, Job speaks of musical instruments in chapter 21 and verse 12. The, all these men, belonging more or less to the patriarchal period, uh, to them, musical instruments were part of their ordinary, everyday life. Uh, music, of a, of a kind, uh, was uh, part and parcel of their background. The first time that musical instruments are mentioned in connection with worship is Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20. It may seem to us to be very primitive, but it is when Miriam and the, and the women of Israel took tam tambourines and went out to sing and to dance. Uh, the great song of Moses, you know, the song of Miriam and Moses, uh, when uh, just after the destruction of Pharaoh's host in the Red Sea. That's the first time that we find, um, uh, as far as we know, at least mentioned in Scripture, uh, musical instruments accompanying worship. In David's day, musical instruments, instrumental music <coughs> accompanying worship came into its own. 1 Chronicles 15, 16, 19, 20, and 21 give you all kinds of instruments that were used in the temple. It waited until David's day. first time that musical instruments are mentioned in connection with worship is Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20. It may seem to us to be very primitive, but it is when Miriam and the, and the women of Israel took tam tambourines and went out to sing and to dance uh, the great song of Moses. You know the song of Miriam and Moses uh, when uh, just after the destruction of Pharaoh's host in the Red Sea. That's the first time that we find, um, uh, as far as we know, at least mentioned in Scripture, uh, musical instruments accompanying worship. In David's day, musical instruments, instrumental music <coughs> accompanying worship came into its own. 1 Chronicles 15, 16, 19, 20, and 21 give you all kinds of instruments that were used in the temple. It waited until David's day for the real organization of music as part of worship. Uh, indeed, as we said last week, in many ways, uh, music seems to have been the basis for much worship. It seems to have been so interwoven with the service of God, with prophecy, for instance, as well as praise, that it is very hard to know whether prophecy gave rise to music or music gave rise to prophecy. Um, so, you see, it immediately becomes very interesting to us to note all this. Um, there were undoubtedly many more instruments that were used in the temple than those we have on record. We have only a certain number of the chief 
instrument, uh, and the most popular instrument uh, on record. There were others. We have strange kinds of, of uh, things, and I might just say this, that uh, about musical instruments, this is like the Bible, unfortunately, on one or two points along this line, it's not, it's not explicit uh, in, 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 in musical instruments. We still to this day don't fully know uh, what a sat is. Uh, we have an idea, uh, but we're not clear. Uh, two or three suppositions made, but uh, we're not absolutely clear. No doubt, as time goes on, these things will become clearer and clearer. But, you see, one thing we do know is that there were certain kinds of musical instruments used. The chief wind instruments, for instance, seem to have been, as far as we can discover, the flute. Uh, the flute, uh, the horn, which was originally a great ram's horn, and the uh, trumpet, which was beaten silver. These three instruments were the chief of the wind instruments. So when we find a psalm, uh, which is um, earmarked for wind instruments, we would expect to find at least these three, the flute. And the flute could either be the single flute or what we call the pan pipe, um, a number of reeds. And indeed, Josephus tells us that uh, <coughs> before Christ, uh, there was a kind of organ with over a hundred reeds in use. So you see, the whole question of music and so on is quite interesting uh, uh, when you begin to investigate it. Then again, uh, we not only have wind instruments, but we have stringed instruments, which were the favourites, always have been the favourites of the Jewish people. Um, we have here chief uh, string instruments mentioned, are the psaltery, which was like a lyre, it was portable, held in the hand, usually, to be played, a small thing, a lyre or a, uh, or a psaltery, and a harp, which was more like the harp we know today, a much larger instrument altogether. Those were the chief stringed instruments. So if we get psalms that are earmarked for stringed instruments, we can expect that they would be uh, those instruments. Then the chief percussion instruments were three. One was a small hand drum, the other was very much like it, the tambourine, and the third were what we call cymbals, but they're not the cymbals we know today. The cymbals, the Jew old Jewish cymbals, were divided into two. They were what were called clear-sounding cymbals and clanging cymbals. The clanging cymbals were deep, booming things. All these cymbals, by the way, were bells. The, the uh, clanging cymbals were deep, booming things that, it is believed, were used to drown everything else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the end of a, of a, of a musical interlude uh, the, ended in a crescendo and, uh, with these clanging cymbals, or when silence was requested everywhere in the court, uh, these great clanging symbols. Now, you remember, Paul takes up, if I, uh, he talks about if we haven't got these different things, haven't got love, we've got all these other ones, then we're a clanging symbol. One of these great big booming things that drowns everything else, but really is nothing. Or then there's the clear sounding symbol or bell, which was um, be a bell of a very 
clear, uh, high note. These were the chief instruments that we know. Of course, if we turn to Daniel 3, we have the most remarkable description uh, of an orchestra. Uh, dulcimer, sackbut, flute, cornet, uh, harp, and so on. You have to turn to Daniel 3 and verse 5. You'll find it three times mentioned, at least in that one chapter, the band in Nebuchadnezzar's day. But you can see straight away that um, these musical instruments were part of life. Now, to us, they may have, their music would probably have been most harsh and discordant. Falling on our Western ears, we might well have considered them to be anything but musical or melodious. But to them, as uh, one has described them, he used to fill the house of God with sweet melody. To them, they, they were absolutely necessary to the worship of God. And Psalm 150 that I mentioned earlier, of course, um, is the closing psalm of the Psalter and brings in all these different chief instruments. Verse 3, praise him with trumpet, praise him with psalter and harp, praise him with timbre or tambourine, praise him with stringed instrument and pipe or flute or reed, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. So you can see that uh, the psalms uh, were used in the temple with this musical accompaniment. Um, then what about singing, if we can say anything about singing? It would seem that singing in worship was almost from the beginning antiphonal. That is, um, it was sung uh, alternately in response. Um, one choir uh, would sing uh, one verse, as it were. Uh, other choir would answer uh, with the next. Or some, of course, as we read one Psalm evening, 42, uh, one choir would sing the main part, the other would sing the chorus. Or sometimes it was choir and people. For his loving kindness endures forever. You see? Well, the choir sang uh, the first part of each verse, and the whole congregation answered that with, For his loving kindness endures forever. And that went on for a long time. You know Psalm 136, a long psalm. But everyone was brought into the worship, you see, by responding to the choirs as they sang. This was a feature, an absolute feature of singing in worship. It is interesting that the first recorded um, musical time recorded of musical accompaniment to worship it is in this form of singing it says that Miriam took the women of Israel and went out to meet them as the men sang the main part of the psalm they sang back a chorus you read it psalm, uh, Exodus 15 verse 1 and then compare the last part uh, of it how the women replied. The men folk sang one part, the women replied. And so um, it was this antiphonal singing, singing in response to each other. It was a feature of singing in those days. Now, what about musical instructions? Well, uh, we've got some. I think we may be able to move through them this evening. Um, we find, for instance, the first, if we look at the musical instructions, we have dealt with the literary instructions last week. 
what do we find in these musical instructions? Well, in 55 songs, we have the words in the title to the chief musician. Now, who was the chief musician? Until recently, um, no one has been able to quite discover who the chief musician was until um, much more uh, definite research. And we began to we've begun to discover some very interesting things. The Hebrew means to lead in music. So, consequently, my version puts chief musician. Or the revised standard version puts choir master to the choir master. Presenter. He was the leader of the choir, the temple choirs, and orchestra. In the days of David, we find in 1 Chronicles 15, his name was Chenoniah. He was the leader of the choir, the temple choirs, and orchestra. So we discovered something straight away. He was conductor of the orchestra and of the choir. He was not only conductor, uh, that is in practice, but he was the one who, made, who actually arranged all the musical settings and uh, decided as to whether certain psalms were suitable. Uh, Why on earth all the translators have put four or two? No one has yet really been able to discover. It is another evidence of the muddle that exists over some titles. Because it is the exact same little uh, word that we find in connection with uh, the authorship of David. No one thinks of putting to David or for David. Everyone puts of David, of uh, He-Man, the Ezra Hyde. But when it comes to chief musicians, everyone has changed it to for or to. Now, uh, really, all it means is belonging to. Only it doesn't mean belonging to in the sense of authorship, but belonging to in the sense of use. That means that all these psalms that have to the chief musician or for the chief musician may have, in some cases, been written and composed for him, for his use. But the real meaning of the, of the, of the word is simply it belonged to a collection or repertory of the precentor. He had a collection of psalms or songs, and uh, he arranged them and uh, decided. Some of them were undoubtedly contemporary, that is, they were written for him, uh, 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 written and sent to him, you see, for him. So we can understand it in that way. But there were many that were either earlier or were not meant to be sung or used in the worship of God's people in the temple, but which the chief musician, the presenter, decided were worthy of being included in the worship of God's people and were finally brought into his collection. So you see, we do begin to discover some very interesting things um, about uh, these psalm titles. Uh, for instance, we discover that nearly all the psalms that have this little uh, um, prefix to the chief musician are David, which is very interesting. It seems that after David's time, uh, it was not so common. Perhaps this presenter's collection was lost in a much bigger collection. It may well be that. We don't know. Now, and I see it's almost nine. Um, we really ought just lastly to look at some of the words that are used uh, in the... Um, 
in these psalms. Let's just look. You remember we said about these musical instructions, they were divided up into certain classes of information. Uh, the first was to do with seasons. Now, if you look at Psalm 45, you open, keep your Bibles open at the psalms, because we shall be just looking through two or three rather swiftly. Psalm 45, we find for the chief musician, set to Shoshanan. What does Shoshanan do? Shoshanan means lilies. It is not only in the title of 45, it is also in the title of 69. But if we rearrange the titles as we should, then Shoshanan belongs to Psalm 44 and Psalm 68. Now, what is this lily? What is this lily about? Because we find it in four different psalms. So, Shoshanim by itself, and then Shoshanim Edel, which means lilies, a testimony. Uh, we find that in Psalm 60 and Psalm 80, or more correctly when we arrange, Psalm 59 and Psalm 79. Now, <clears throat> what do lilies mean? Well, one further word about seasons. Psalms for, for particular seasons. We find in three psalms, Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84, the word gittis used. Gittis. Uh, if we rearrange it, it's Psalm 7, Psalm 80, and Psalm 83. Now, what does gittis mean? It means wine presses. So now we've got a clue. We have lilies, and wine presses. Now, I can't venture into it this evening, but I wish I could read you a chapter in Circle's book, Dr. Circle's book, about this whole question of lilies and, and wine presses. It is absolutely fascinating. The, the amazing, I never knew it until I began to look into this, uh, the connection between lilies and fruit. Lilies in, in scripture are always are a, a term, as you know, there's no clear botanical distinction in scripture at all. Lilies is just a term for flowers. And it just means spring. And the, the wine, wine presses particularly, are always connected with autumn, vintage. The gathering in of the, of the, of the vine harvest. Okay? Now the one thing, go back to the temple, and what do you find? You find bells, and pomegranates, the same thought. The bells are flowers. The pomegranates are fruit. The candlestick, according to Josephus, was made up of knots and flowers. Lilies, he says, and pomegranates. In, you remember, the temple, one of the features on the top of the, of the pillows and hanging down in reason work were pomegranates and lilies. All I'm trying to say is that lilies and fruit. Later on, <clears throat> you find in Herod's temple, in the day of our Lord Jesus, on the veil, on one side was inscribed lilies, and on the other side a vine. And so if you go on, I can't remember all the other things, but there's a fascinating study, and this whole connection of lilies and, and grapes, clusters of grapes. It speaks of the beginning of the harvest, spring, and the end. Now, what does it speak of? It speaks of Passover and tabernacles. 
and it speaks of the Lord as the redeemer of his people, the saviour of his people, and the keeper of his people. Now, we should expect to find in these psalms then, as the keynote in psalms that have Shoshanim or Shoshanim eagles, the Lord as the saviour of his people. And we should expect them to refer back to the Exodus. In nearly every case, they go back. Not the psalms that they are now uh, at present, uh, prefixing, but if we rearrange them, we shall discover that they are absolutely correct. And we shall discover that the wine press, the Gittis psalms, are all connected with the Lord as the keeper and the preserver of his people. I think that's the most remarkable fact. So you see, these psalm titles are much more interesting than perhaps uh, we all think. Uh, at least, uh, if we want an intelligent understanding later on of the Psalms, uh, we shall discover that we've got a key. Now, one or two other things very swiftly. What about notes here marking Psalms for certain special occasions, or for commemorating his certain historical occasions? Well, take these Al-Tasha Psalms. They are Psalms 57 to 59, and Psalms 75. Or, if we rearrange them, Psalm 56 to 58 and 74. Now, what, is, what does El-Tashat mean? It means destroyer. Read Psalm 56, read Psalm 57, read Psalm 58, and everyone begins with, Oh, Lord, be merciful. Destroyer. 74 is in the same vein. Destroyer. Now, we understand that these psalms were used for times of national repentance and humiliation and fasting. They were the psalms that were turned to to express the emotion of the people as they got down before the Lord and fasted before him. They were probably used at certain times when, when the nation was at the point of being overrun and occupied. See? They were used for all kinds of occasions, when there was a plague in the land or something else, and the whole nation humbled itself before the Lord. Then, um, what about Mahalat? or Mahalath Lina, in Psalm 53, or rearranged Psalm 52, Psalm 88, or rearranged Psalm 87. Mahalath, or Mahalath means dancing. Mahalath Lina means dancing with shouting. If you look at both of those Psalms, Psalm 52 and Psalm 87, you will discover that both are most wonderfully suited to jubilation. But I might say that the actual psalms that they are prefixes to are anything but suitable to dancing or dancing with shouting. Then look at Psalm 9, or more correctly when we arrange Psalm 8. We have set to Muslaban. Muslaban means death of the sun. Now this is one that has a question mark over. What does this mean? Circle says he, he translates according to the rabbis, by death of a champion, he believes it referred to the death of Goliath and was a commemoration annually of the, of, the, of the slaying of Goliath. I don't know whether we can completely accept that. Um, but whatever it means, it means death of the sun. A most remarkable thing. And perhaps when we look at Psalm 8 in the light of this title, Death of the Sun, we might find a far greater understanding in that wonderful little psalm. Now, what about certain choirs? Very swiftly now, because this is simple. What about certain choirs? Well, the first choir is the choir of Alamos. 
Psalm 46, or rearranged Psalm 45. What is our amazing choir of soprano voices? We find it only in one psalm as a subscript to Psalm 45, and it perfectly fits it. Um, Shemini, there's another one, set to Shemini. What is Shemini? By the way, both these are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 15. Harp set to Shemini, and Sorter is set to Alamos. <clears throat> well, now then, this choir, Shemini, that had a certain uh, uh, instrument, Shemini means the eighth. Uh, there have been many, many conjectures as to what this word eighth means. Is it uh, to do with the octave? Is it to do with circumcision? What is, what is the meaning of this eighth? There have been many, many suggestions made over it. But, of course, everyone agrees on one thing. It is a choir of male voices. And if you read the psalms that it is connected with, Psalm 6, or rearranged, Psalm 5, or Psalm 12, or rearranged, Psalm 11, you will discover that they are very suitable to male voices. Well, what about the choir of Jedison? Jedison is Ethan. Ethan, or Jedison. We read of him in 1 Chronicles 16, 41. We're told that uh, David told him uh, that he was to have charge over a choir of his sons. He had, I think, six sons. And he was to have them in his choir. They must have all had very beautiful voices, probably took after their father. And he trained them, he was trained, and their particular function was to praise and to thank the Lord. <coughs> uh, celebration. I don't know whether that is the key, but if you read through these Psalms, 39 or 38, 62 or 61, or 77 or 76, you will discover that they are all for the choir of Jedison. I think the most reasonable key to Jedison is this. Jedison developed a certain choral technique that forever after was associated with him and was called after the manner of Jedison. All right, it was a choral technique. I think that is the most rational uh, explanation. Now, Sons of Korah. Well, we find Sons of Korah usually in the title, a psalm of the Sons of Korah, masculine of, of, of the Sons of Korah. But in two psalms, Psalm uh, 46 and Psalm 88, or 45, which was set to maiden voices, and uh, Psalm uh, 87, we discover that in the subscript it is repeated of the sons of Korah. And uh, Rotherham, J.B. Rotherham, makes this very good suggestion that the sons of Korah, who were a school, were probably also a choir. And he suggests, do we actually know whether there was a man called Korah? Because the name means Baldmash. And he thinks that it was a patriarchal choir. Well, I don't know whether you think that's fanciful, but, but Rotherham is not a fanciful man, actually. Uh, he says that he thinks it is a, a more patriarchal choir, certain, again, with a certain choral setting. It's interesting that Psalm 45, then, is probably a psalm that was sung in parts. The men singing parts and the women singing the other parts. Isn't that interesting? You might like to read Psalm 45 and get to the Sunday and see and, and just think of that. It's very interesting in the light of that. <coughs> then what about topical titles? Very briefly, there are only two of them. Psalm 22, or rearrange Psalm 21, Idolus Hash Shaha. What on earth does that mean? 
behind the door. But listen, look at Psalm 21. Hind of the dawn. Hind of the dawn, by the way, was the, the uh, Jewish way of speaking of the sun. They called it the sun. Hind of the dawn. They still do, actually. The Arabs still call sun uh, the, the hind of the dawn. They believe that he is uh, leaping into the arena of day. Um, hind of the dawn. Um, well, what does this mean? When you read Psalm 21, the whole thing is about the king. The son of righteousness. Very, very interesting if you look at that. Uh, in that slide. Topical title, Hind of the Dawn. Um, a circle believes it was a national anthem uh, in those days. It's all to do with the king and his glory. And then uh, the other one is Psalm 56 or 55, Dove of the Distant Terrible. Well, we've explained that already. We can see that with, to do with Psalm 55, it's perfectly fit. Fifthly, in the subscripts, we have one last bit of information, musical. Psalms for special musical setting. Psalm 4, or rearranged Psalm 3, is set to Neginoth, which means stringed instrument. So that's rather interesting to know that psalm had an accompaniment of only stringed instruments. And Psalm 5, or we are in Psalm 4, had an accompaniment only of wind instruments. Flute, horn, and trumpet. Uh, so that's interesting to know that. Now it only leaves us to speak of two little words, and we're completely finished on the musical aspect of the psalm. The two little words are the words Selah. And the other one is a little word, beguiled. What do these little words mean? Well, I wish we could end on a happy note, but uh, over this little word, love, there is more mystery than all We apologise to the listener, but the end of side two is missing from the master tape. <laughs>